So we're looking this morning in Genesis chapter 11, very last verses of chapter 11, and into chapter 12, the call of God. Um, I always think two, of two things when I think of the call of God. I first think, wow, I really wish, I've often wished God would, would speak to me. Like, would it be great if I, if, I, if I could hear his voice like they heard in the Old Testament or even in places in the New Testament. And then the next thought I have is, I think I would be terrified if I heard God's voice. I, I, don't, know if I, want him to, I don't know if I want him to speak to me. I, don't know, I think I'll just accept it in the Word. I think I told you uh, this story maybe three or four years ago um, when we were in college. Uh, and, and I think you guys know, most of you know, that George Robertson and I uh, were in college at the same time. He was a year behind me at Covenant College, and we actually lived on the same hall. I know George has shared some of the, uh, um, the goofy pranks we played on people. And when I think of the call of God, I always think of this one moment, which I share, I think, with you three or four years ago, where a young soccer player, a guy that I actually went to high school with, um, I was a senior, he was a freshman, he comes to Covenant College, uh, he's now a pastor up in St. Louis, and Chris somehow ended up in a room by himself. Now, you couldn't do this prank today, um, or it wouldn't really matter today, because we have Bluetooth and all that, but you guys remember back at the time when if there was any noise that were going to come out of your speaker, it had to be all wired up, right? There had to be actual wires attached to the back of the speakers for them to work. Um, not only power cords, but actual wires running from the sound. Well, the guys next to Chris's room, they ran wires from their stereo outside uh, along the windowsill back in and hooked them into Chris's stereo in such a way that they could override Chris's stereo at any time they wanted. Um, so Chris would at night, maybe because he was afraid, because he was in a room by himself, I don't know, maybe just to calm himself down, he used to always go to bed uh, playing music. Um, so we, you could hear Chris go up to his, his little loft, his bunk bed, and he had turned on music and he was going to listen as he went to sleep. These guys started to do stuff, started to toy with him, and once Chris got into bed playing the music, they would override his speakers with just some kind of weird very devilish sounding sounds. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then they'd hear Chris hop out of his bunk and he'd go try to turn off the stereo and they would just turn it off. And that went on for a few days. We knew it was working because one day Chris came into my room when I was working on something and he said, hey, uh, Todd, um, like what do you know about demon possession? And uh, <laughs> I, I tried to keep a straight face. I told, I told uh, Chris you know, some, some things and then I told the guys that were in the room next to him, said, hey, it's working. <laughs> it's working. Well, the, the, the culmination of that is one night, uh, Chris went into his room uh, after studying. He turns on the stereo, hops into his bunk bed. Uh, those guys override it with some crazy, weird, spooky sounds. Um, and uh, Chris hops down, turns off the stereo, only this time they don't turn off the sounds. So Chris is freaked out a little bit, and he goes and he pulls the power cord out of, his, out of the wall, and the sounds don't stop. Like, I'm not a speaker. Now he's really freaked out, so he, he rips the wires, the speaker wires, out of the back of his stereo console. The sounds don't stop. And then we hear, because we had our ears all pressed to the door, we hear Chris say, in the name of Jesus, I command you to get out. <laughs> At that point, he heard us all laughing and came out into the hallway. Um, the call, any kind of call from the supernatural. Um, you know, and you see, it in the, you see it in the New Testament, or you see it in the Old Testament. When the angel appeared, the angel always has to say, uh, you know, be at peace. Don't be afraid. 
because it would have been, in some senses, terrifying. So is the, is the call of God just terrible? Well, the call of God is incredible and, and frightful because of what we just sang. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. When, when God reveals himself to. But, but in many cases, and in this case this morning, the call of God is amazing grace. Absolute grace. That this, that this guy with nothing in particular about him, living in Ur, that God, would, that God would speak to him. That God would speak to him. I became so overwhelmed with the grace that is in this passage from start to finish that on, uh, that on Tuesday morning when I was doing my final prep for this, I actually just became overwhelmed with emotion and just stopped. And I found myself just weeping. And the reason I was weeping, somebody saw me a little bit later and said, hey, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I just, it just hit me as I'm looking at God speaking to Abram. It just hit me, why did God speak to me? I was no one, my family was no one. Why would, why would God choose to even speak to me? What we're going to read this morning, we're going to study this morning from start to finish is just the astounding grace of this God who, who chooses to reveal himself, though we do not deserve it. Let's read these verses and then dive into our study this morning, beginning in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Just a side note there. We realize now that Lot was fatherless from a very early age. Speaks a lot into the story that we'll find out later in regards to Lot. Verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an, there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward 
the Negev. As we look at this and try to see this in context and then dive into what God might have to teach us today, I want to point out, first of all, that this is the, the sixth Toledot. Remember that we said that the, the book of Genesis is divided up into these ten Toledots, and they start with the phrase there you see in verse 27, now these are the generations. So this is the sixth time that we've seen Moses write, now these are the generations. So we're going we're gonna to see this, this division or this point of turning. And actually what's taking place right here at this place, verse 27, is we're going from what we've experienced in the first 11 chapters, or almost all 11 chapters of uh, Genesis, we're going from primeval history to patriarchal history. And so as God has revealed to us His workings in creating the world and, and uh, developing created humanity and their, the rebellion, but then also God's redemption, it is now focusing down right to the very line that's described of Shem through, Terah, through Noah uh, into Terah and then into Abraham, and then into the patriarchs. So now we're going we're gonna to bring it down and really focus in on God's redemptive work in this one particular line. I also, think, I also want us to, to make sure we understand um, and see it again, over and over again, that, that Abram wasn't anyone special until God intervened. Don't lose sight of that. See, we live on this side of our Old Testament, this side of the cross, this side of Paul speaking in Romans about Abraham, about the New Testament writers speaking about Abraham. We look back and see Abraham, Abraham, Abraham as a great man of faith, as the father of, of, of our faith. But we need to not lose sight, especially at this point, especially this morning, that there was, there was nothing special about Abraham Abram until God intervened. Abram was just this guy in this great city Ur of the Chaldeans. What we know about Ur is that it was a very civilized and well-developed city. Like we talked about last week that these uh, Mesopotamian cities um, had these ziggurats in the middle of the city. These, these, these towers that are meant to, to you know, show, give, give the people a name for themselves as they try to connect with God. And in Ur in particular, we know that the, the worship there was of the moon god. And we know that it was while Abram was in Ur, that's where he heard God speak. Now you don't see that as clearly in, uh, in Genesis 12.1, particularly in our ESV. But if you read in Acts chapter 7, and you see what uh, Stephen has to say as he gives testimony to the greatness of God and talks about this ark of redemption that led to Christ, he says there in Acts chapter 7, he said, you know, remember that it was in Ur that Abraham, your great father Abraham, received the word from God. And actually, if we were able to look at it in the Hebrew, you would see there at the beginning of verse, uh, verse 12 that it might be better translated, and if you have an NIV, it actually is translated this way, now the Lord had said to Abram. So if you had ESV Bible, they, put, they went ahead and connected the Acts thing and, and, and applied it to the Hebrew there. The Lord had said. So he's in Ur and he receives it while he's there. And he's in a family that worships false gods. We know this from Joshua 24. When Joshua is speaking to the people and asking them to recommit their lives, and he goes back and he tells the story of the redemption, he says, remember your, your fathers, Terah and Abram, how they 
worshipped false gods. And then speaks of Abram being called out of that. So Abram was just this guy in this great city with a, a, a family. Nothing significant about the family other than he had this clan. And he was getting up every morning and worshipping the moon god. But God, which we always see over and over again throughout our Bibles, but God decides to intervene in Abram's life. Nothing special about him. But God decides to intervene and he calls him and he calls him there in Ur, right there as he's able to look out in the morning and see the ziggurat to the moon god. God, the creator, speaks to Abram there. It's very interesting. We're going to look at the call of God particularly as it's displayed in verses uh, 12 through, uh, 12, chapter 12, 1 through 9. And we want to look at, I want to frame it for us as you can see in your notes this morning, as a call from and a call to. Because as we understand God's call in Abram's life, we also understand God's call in the other patriarch's life. We understand God's call in the disciples' lives. We understand the God's call in our life. And when God calls, there's always a call from and there's a call to. Because any real commitment that you and I make, any yes that we say with any force involves some significant no's. Otherwise, the yes doesn't matter. I remind uh, uh, young couples when they're going through premarital counseling, I remind them of this, um, that uh, probably besides, probably the, the moment that people like most in the wedding is, uh, at least the women like it most, is that moment when the bride's coming down the aisle. You know, it's just a, this astounding moment. And you, you look and see how beautiful the bride is the first time you're seeing her. Sometimes it's the first time the groom's seeing her. So you look at her, then you look at the groom, and, uh, you know, and if he hasn't seen her before, and, and the guy has a heart at all, he's, he's usually melting at that point. Um, and then we look back at her to see what he's doing. That's an amazing moment. The other moment that seems to be a crescendo moment for everyone in weddings, is the moment when the guy says, I do. I don't know why it's one of the girls. I think we all assume, of course the girl will say, I do, because she's sweet and nice and sensitive, and she's willing to talk. I think maybe it's because we're silent, that we're like, hey, what's this guy going to say? Will he say, I do? Will we hear it? But when the guy says, I do, it's this crescendo moment. And I remind guys in their premarital counseling, I said, what's amazing about that moment, what's amazing about that yes, that I do, is that in that moment, you are also saying a hundred million no's to every other woman in the world. In fact, our vows used to say, I haven't heard uh, wedding vows like this in a long time, but it used to be part of the vows where you said, forsaking all others, I give myself only to you. Forsaking all others, I give myself only to you. There's always a no if there's a real commitment. There's always a call from if there's going to be a call to. I was also reminded of this. I hadn't heard this in, I hadn't heard, uh, this in years. But I wonder if you all have ever heard the oath that people who seek to be citizens of the United States make when they're before a judge. So when you go through the whole process of seeking to become a citizen of the United States and you get to that moment where your application and the testing and all that's been accepted and you're going to be there before the judge and there's usually... A large group of people there who are coming in. The judge gets up there, gives a little speech, and then says, raise your right hand and repeat after me. And they swear an oath. This is how the oath begins to be a citizen of the United States. I hereby declare 
on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. Man, those are powerful words. The opening line of of saying yes to being a citizen here begins with, I declare that I absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance and fidelity, and then it just lists where those might be. The call that God, that God gives Abram begins with a call from. And I actually, I actually love the wording that uh, Derek Kidner in his commentary uses when he speaks of the three things that God calls uh, uh, Abram from. He says he calls Abram to disentangle himself from country, kindred, and his father's house. To disentangle. I love that word. We're going to use that word this morning. Let's, let's look in our notes here at these three things. First of all, that he's called from his home. He's called to disentangle himself from his home. And the reason I like that word disentangle is because it doesn't mean that you don't value your home. It doesn't mean that you don't value your family. It doesn't mean that you don't value your community. It means this, that the allegiance to God, your allegiance to God, Abraham, has to so far supersede any allegiance to anything else that in some ways it might even look like this this big gap. It might even look like you're just denying it. But it really is a complete disentanglement to not be entangled with other allegiances. So he says, "I I want you to be disentangled. I want you to go from, excuse me, your country, your home. I want you to leave Ur. I want you to leave this amazing city, this place where you actually have a lot of comfort. This place where you grew up. This place where where you know people, where, where you have a job, where, where you kind of know what your future is, a place where you know where your security comes from, where, where, where inside the walls of this city and in, in, the, in the shadow of this ziggurat, you, you kind of have some security in that. And I want you, Abram, to disentangle yourself from that. I want you to let that go. I want you to go from He goes on, he says, also, Abram, I want you to go from your kindred or from your community, as we put there in the notes. And clearly, as you look at primeval history and even patriarchal history, being part of a clan was was really important for protection. I mean, being part of a community, being, being, being part of kindred was important for protection. There were there were generally no, no police forces or nor, no uh, uh, any kind of military force that was regularly established in order to, to make sure that there was justice and nobody and everybody was protected. So you were protected by being part of your clan, being part of your kindred. And in God's call to Abram, he says, I want you to disentangle yourself from your earthly protection. I want you to... To, to release your allegiance to your earthly protection. And as you follow me, you not only go from your home, go from the place you grew up, but I want you to go from your kindred. I want you that to be disentangled. 
And then he says, thirdly, I want you to go from your father's house or from, as we put there, family. Now, some of you who are reading it, have, have read this before, have really looked at this, you probably notice in verse 31 that it does seem that Abram and Terah and Lot and their wives, it does seem that they, they leave Ur and they're traveling, so maybe, they're, maybe this is part of the following of God, but then they get to Haran and it says they settled there. And you're like, what is that about? And they settled there until Abram's father dies and then, and then they go again. And you wonder, okay, and, and scholars wonder this too, is it, is it that Abram was reluctant to obey the call of God and, and fully give himself to it? Or was it that, that Abram was just being uh, gracious towards his father, that he was, he was trying to do what God said and was just taking some time? Here's the deal. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Other texts in Scripture don't tell us which it was. Um, we're going to find out later <clears throat> that Abram's not a perfect guy. In fact, we're going to find out next week that Abram is a guy just like us who in his pragmatism is willing to, to actually sin against God and then try to make some argument that, well, that made sense because it was the practical thing to do. So we know this guy isn't perfect, so we're not exactly sure, but we do know that, that eventually, whatever the reason it took time, that eventually he even leaves his father's house. He even leaves family and closest family. Closest family. So it's you leave your place, your home, you leave your community, your kindred, but even disentangle yourself from family. It reminds me of what Jesus said when he spoke about discipleship, about following him. When he spoke about discipleship, Jesus said that if you're going to come after me, you must hate your mother and father. And you say, what, that, how is that right? Why would Christ want us to hate you know, our, 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 our mother and father? How does that... Christ was speaking in hyperbole to try to show us how important disentangling ourselves was from that. And so, and so what, did he, what was he trying to show us there? He was trying to show us that the gap between our allegiance to Christ and our allegiance to anything else, even family, the gap between that would be so great that if someone were to look at that in our lives, they might wonder, have we just denied family? Now I'll tell you this. I know not everybody in this room is married, but I know a lot of you are. I know, I know, I know several of you would like to be. Here's, here's the deal, brothers. Um, you, cannot, you cannot truly love your wife unless your love and allegiance to Christ so far exceeds your love for your wife and your family, that the gap looks almost ridiculous. It's only when the gap gets that big that you are free to love your wife as Christ intended. Only then. In fact, if your love for your wife or your love for your family begins to compete with your love for Christ, then the reality is you've made an idol out of your family. You're not really loving them. In order for us to truly love family, we have to disentangle our allegiance to Christ with our allegiance to family. And we have to make sure that the, that the priority of Christ is, is massive com compared to the priority 
of family. And only then can we, in obedience to Christ, really love our wives. It's even harder, isn't it, when we, when we actually have kids? If God blesses you with children, or if he blesses you with grandchildren, I'm telling you, brothers, grandfathers, your allegiance to your children, your grandchildren, cannot be entangled with your allegiance to Christ. The call to be committed to God requires a disentanglement of those allegiances in order that you would not make you and I would not make an idol out of children, out of grandchildren. Because it's only when we're free in our in our love and allegiance to Christ, it's only there that we are free to truly love like Christ loves our children and our grandchildren, our family. Those allegiance get entangled, then we will make idols out of them. God says to Abram, I need you to go from your father's house. But then he goes on, beginning in the second part of uh, the very last phrase of verse 1 of chapter 12, and he begins speaking, speaking about being called to. And here's where you begin to see, in the freedom of being called from, you begin to see the grace just poured out on Abram. Just this guy. Just this guy. And it begins with these promises. Multiple promises. And don't lose sight of it in verse 2 and 3. The amount of times that God says, I will. I will. I will. It's God doing it. God says, I'm going to give you these promises. And these promises are great. Several of them. He says, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a, make you a great nation. I will give you a great name. I will bless you. I will bless others through you. I'm going to give you these promises. Again, who's Abram? He's no one. But God in his greatness, God in his great love, God in his great mercy, God in his amazing grace looks down on Abram. And frankly, in that he looks down on all of us because who are we? And in that moment, speaks these great covenantal words to Abram. Now we're going to unpack the covenant that he makes with Abram in the weeks ahead. So I don't want to steal the thunder from, from chapter uh, 15 and chapter 17. We'll really get into that covenant. But here's the beginning of this covenant described. God says, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to make of you a great nation, he says. I'm going to give you a great name, which is which is a great contrast with what was taking place in uh, chapter 11, beginning of chapter 11, right? They were, building, they were building a tower in order to make a name for themselves. And here, Abram, God says to Abram, I'm, I will make your name great. You don't need to make a name for yourself. I'm going to be the one that does this. In chapter 11, beginning of chapter 11, and the end of chapter 10, they were, were establishing nations, Right? They were, were wanting to, to show themselves great as a nation. And here God is saying, I will make a great nation. And in making a great nation, what is Abram talking about? Well, or God talking about? Well, first of all, we'll, we'll see that, 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 that he does make the nation of Israel out of Abram. But the intent was that the nation of, of Israel, as, as a chosen people, would, would bring this salvation, this gospel to the whole world. 
And they struggled to do that. We're going to see that you see that all through your Bibles. And then, as we see in Romans uh, chapter uh, 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes it clear, hey, listen, the children of Abraham were not primarily biological children. The promise of a great nation was not ultimately a physical nation on this earth. The promise of a great nation was a nation of people redeemed by Christ. That's, that's you, that's me, if you put your faith in Christ. We are that great nation. That is our citizen. The great nation being spoken of here in chapter 12 is, is a nation that we're a part of. It's our primary citizenship. And so even as we spoke about citizenship before and, and uh, we recognize that, you know, we're, we're uh, I guess it was Tuesday, last Tuesday marked the year point. A year from last Tuesday, we're going to have a national election. And it's going to be our temptation because we've grown up in this country to have our allegiances to Christ and to country tangled up. And we need to make sure as men of God who, who are primary citizens of this great nation, not the United States, but of the nation of Abraham, the nation of the promise, that we would disentangle our allegiances and we would understand clearly, very clearly, that our allegiance to Christ so far needs to supersede our allegiance to the United States that the gap looks, needs to look massive. And the only way I can really be a great citizen of this country or any country is if I disentangle those allegiances. If I wrap them up, if I wrap them up, I will make an idol out of the country I live in. I will make an idol out of that history. I, 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 will, I, will, I will have a very hard time navigating difficult political situations if, if those allegiances are entangled. It's only when those allegiances become disentangled that I'm actually free to be an amazing citizen of whatever country God puts me in. When I'm fully and wholly committed to Jesus, then whatever country I land in, whatever, whatever passport I possess, I approach that country with this mindset. I am a free citizen of the great nation that God has put together for eternity. And my citizenships belong there. But right now I'm living here. I wonder how I can help this country. And so you can move anywhere in the world. And you can be that kind of a citizen. The great nation being spoken of here is the great nation that God has given us to be a part of. The great land ultimately is the land that is promised for us in the future. The city that's spoken about in, um, in Revelation. So these great promises. Second thing that God, that God calls Abraham to is faith. Calls him to faith. So there's a promise that God gives. And then actually God gives faith. And we know Abraham was, was a guy of faith. Uh, Russ prayed about his faithfulness. You read in, uh, in Romans um, that uh, it was his faith that was credited to him, his righteousness, as Russ prayed. Um, we read about it in Hebrews chapter 11, the, that, that by faith Noah did these things, and it lists all these things that Noah did by faith. And we also know that, that the faith that he had was actually a gift of grace given to him. He wasn't just naturally a guy that had a lot of faith. It wasn't until God revealed himself to him that that faith was, was given to him. 
And that faith was displayed because he was trusting in, as, as uh, Kent Hughes puts it, um, Kent Hughes, a pastor of College Church up in Wheaton, Illinois, as Kent Hughes put, he was putting his trust in the naked word of God. All Abram had was God's word. <laughs> All Abram had was this, was verses 2 and 3. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Abram, go from this. Go to, and just go to the nation. Hey, you go to the land I, I'll show you. Go ahead and leave the city. Leave, and uh, along the way, I'll show you where to go. <laughs> and I'm going to do these things. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you, um, I'm going to bless you. Which would have been astounding to believe because first of all, Sarai was barren. His wife was, she, didn't have, she couldn't have kids. They didn't have any kids. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And, and by faith, Abram believed that. Now he struggles to figure out how God's going to do that. And, and it was, we learn later on, well, he tries to help God. You know, he, He's not convinced God can do this through Sarah, so, Sarai. So he's gonna, he, gets real, he gets real pragmatic and decides he's going to give God some assistance on this great nation thing. And God has to keep coming back and saying, uh, you're sinning by not believing in me. But here... We see that he's trusting in the naked word of God. It reminded me, I know many of you know the testimony of our brother David Montague, who, uh, who started and runs Memphis Teacher Residency. Um, I also think most of us know David here and know that he's a normal guy like us. He's not like some super Christian hero. Um, so I'm not saying this in any way to, to puff him up. Um, but I love this story about him. Many of you remember that... Uh, Many, many years ago, that David was challenged by an older brother in Christ at his church to just read through the Bible in this next year and w- whatever it said, do it. Which, of course, that should be always our plan, right? But it sounds so when, when David said it, you're like, wow, what a discipleship plan. Um, so David and his wife did that. That's what really started them on this journey that even led to some of the other things that they've done in ministry. As he said, we just started reading through the Bible, and whatever it said, we were just going to do, which is what God tells us to do. <laughs> and here, Abram is believing God. He's hearing the naked word of God, and then he's going to do it. And that's what leads us to that next word. Next word, or next uh, uh, line there, obedience. So God gives the promise. God gives faith. And out of that grace flows this obedience. It's not that Abraham obeys and it's credited to him as righteousness. It's not that Abraham obeys God or calls out to God and God loves him. No, God sets his love on Abram and he gives him the promise. He gives him faith. And in response to that, Abram obeys. In fact, his obedience reveals that he has received the promise and faith from God. Same for us. Our obedience is not what makes us pleasing to God. No, God has decided to set His affection on you, on me. He has given us the gift of repentance. He's given us the gift of faith. And we know those things are real. We know that God is truly acting in our lives when we see obedience in our lives. Obedience is the evidence that God is working. Obedience is not the thing that drives God working. And so we're free in that. Some of us are, are very tempted towards legalism. We're very tempted, just give me the rules, let me follow the rules. I'm a good rule follower, and when I follow rules, people love me, so God's going to love me. We struggle with that. 
There's other of you men in here who are like, I hate rules. Don't give me any rules. Don't even talk about rules. That's not even the gospel. Well, what's happening here frees us from both extremes. Because we understand that, that faith and the promise come as gifts, and we understand that obedience is just a response to those things. It shows, it's, it gives evidence. So there's evidence in Abram's life that he has received the call of God. I love what it says in verse 4. It says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. That's the David Montague. <laughs> God said, do this. Abraham believed it, and he took action. He actually did those things. He believed the word, and then he did the word. Another place that we see his obedience is in verse 5, and it would be easy to miss this. Notice the list of things that he brings with him, his people he brings with him, and their possessions. And then notice the phrase, and, this is verse 5 of chapter 12, and the people they had acquired in Haran. What is this? The people they had acquired in Haran. It would seem, maybe at first glance, as reading our English Bibles, we would seem to go, well, maybe that was servants he purchased or slaves he purchased. Um, but the word that's used there in the Hebrew, nephish, is never used to describe slaves or servants. It's just used to describe people, or it could be translated souls. And what seems apparent is that Abram is doing exactly what Noah did. Remember we studied Noah? And Noah had received a word from God that this judgment was coming. He was going to build this ark. But Noah didn't just receive that and then go out and build the ark. It actually, as it was described in the New Testament writers, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That as he was building this ark, he was actually proclaiming the word that God had given to him. It appears that Abram's doing the same thing. That he's received a word from God and as he's, and he's, he's gone out from Haran, or when he was in Haran, he actually was proclaiming the word he'd received. And it seems that there's others going, okay, we're going we're gonna to go with you. These are the people he acquired. So Abram has received the promise of God. He's received uh, faith from God. He's believed God, taken God at his word, and now he's put it into action. He's being obedient. He's doing those things. Knowing, remember we said this last week, knowing always has to flow with being and doing. It's actually unique in, in our time in history. So in the last 50 to 75 years in, in our country and in Western Europe, this idea of separating knowing from doing is really unique and kind of bizarre. In fact, in all other places in the world, that just that doesn't compute. But somehow we've gotten to a place where it's okay for us as a culture to, to know some things, to say, oh yeah, you know, especially when it comes to religious things, and then not to actually do anything as a result of it. To have beliefs, but those beliefs don't actually affect actions. And of course, this has even seeped into our churches. Where, where the great danger for us, brothers, is to come here on a Thursday morning, week after week, year after year, which, which you need to be commended for doing. And you come here and you sink deeply into God's Word. I've told you for years, the greatest blessing of this is the encouragement that you give me that you as just men would come here every Thursday morning with the intent to sink deeply into God's Word. As I've told people, uh, younger pastors, when they get the opportunity to preach amen, I said, hey man, don't go light. Don't go light there. Those guys won't put up with it. <laughs> Don't be fluffy. Those guys don't want fluffy. Those guys are there to study God's word. You're to be commended for that. The danger, brothers, 
is that we would do that week after week, year after year, for decades, and it wouldn't affect our lives. That we would be knowing and not doing. And so the call, the command from the book of James when he says in chapter 1, do not merely be hearers of the word, but do what it says. Be obedient. And he says if you're a hearer of the word, but you don't do what it says, James says it's like this. It's like a man who, after looking at himself in the mirror, walks away and does nothing. Now, I know some of you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, wow, it looks terrible. And you walk away and do nothing. We can tell. We know who you are. (laughs) But most of you, the reason you look in the mirror is to go, oh, there's some things I need to adjust before I need to go to work. That's what James is saying. The word of God is that mirror. I come Thursday morning to look in the mirror. I go Sunday morning and Sunday night to look in the mirror of the word of God. And I see, I know something, I reflect on it, pray on it, being, and then I take action. And here, what has happened is Abram has taken action. His faith has feet. It's actually working itself out. Knowing, being, doing. And finally, this morning, there comes worship. And that always is, that always is the, that always is the ultimate um, evidence that God has changed a life. Always the ultimate evidence that God has changed a life. When I meet someone who, who says, the Lord has changed my life, but I really don't enjoy worship on Sunday, I'm not convinced that the Lord has changed their lives. Because every place in Scripture you see that flow. As God gives grace through His promises, and then He, and he gives us the gift of faith and repentance, the, the evidences of that is the obedience, the response to that. And it always it always explodes into worship. It always comes into that moment. What, what happens here is, as Abram travels through the land, look at what verse 7, what does he do? After the Lord appears to him, what does Abram do? He builds an altar to the Lord. He worships. And then he does it again in verse 8. He gets to the place between Bethel and Ai. What does he, he builds an altar to call upon the name of the Lord. It, this obedience, this, this line of God's grace is exploding for Abram in in worship. Instead of building towers to himself to make his name great, like in the beginning of chapter 11, instead, the monuments that Abram leaves as he travels are monuments to the faithfulness of God. He wants to build memories. He wants to magnify the Lord. Psalm 34 talks about magnifying the Lord, taking a magnifying glass and making sure that everyone can see in bigger ways, the greatness of God. And that's what Abram's doing. He's magnifying the Lord. He's showing the, the greatness of God. He's building monuments to who he is. God has initiated. God has given him promises and faith. He's being obedient. He's walk, And it's exploding into worship. I think that's what happened to me, not because of anything in me, what happened to me Tuesday. And I, I want you to think for a second as we wrap things up this morning. Where was it? What location? What place? What time? 
Where was that place in time where God called you in salvation? I know for some of us, you're, you're like me. Um, you're not exactly sure. I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church. I walked the aisle like 50 times, so I have like 50 options of when God called. Not exactly sure if I was saved at five or... But I'm telling you, there was a moment when I was 16 and I know where I was. I was in Largo, Florida. I was in my room. It was somewhere between 12 a.m. and 2 a.m. And I knew the call of God in that moment. And I know there was a time for you. And probably just like me, there was nothing special about me in that moment that God would speak to me. That God would call me. There's nothing special about my family. I wasn't reaching out to God. He was reaching out to me. I bet that's what it was like for you. I bet whatever that time and place is that you have in your mind, when God called you to salvation, there's nothing special about you. There's nothing special about your family. There's nothing particular in you that He would choose you. Instead, you just knew the amazing grace of God that he would reach down and speak to you. And it all began in Ur of Chaldees. That call that that I received at 16 in Largo, Florida, in that room at 1 a.m., began in Ur of Chaldees. When God, in his grace, spoke to Abram. And that's what I was feeling Tuesday. What happened Tuesday is it, for me is it exploded into worship. And all I wanted to do was say to God, why? Why would you choose me? And then to say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that you called me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do right here in this moment, remembering those places and times, whether we were by ourselves or we were in a crowd, whether we were wandering away in a far country or we were sitting in a worship service, Father, we remember those moments when you called us to salvation. And right now, right here, Lord, we praise you and worship you and thank you for doing that. There was nothing particular about us. There was nothing particular about our family. There was nothing in us that deserved that you would call us from our old lives to a life of redemption. Oh, but Father, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you. Father, may our lives today reflect that reality. May we, may we go from this place in obedience and worship, having received from you promises and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.